Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Well, those of you that I can see, you look good. Everyone else, your names look great. Um, <laughs> it's good to be together this morning. Um, I am so looking forward to gathering in person next week, next Sunday afternoon. Um, but this being, Lord willing, this being our, hopefully our last Sunday morning Zoom only uh, service, uh, I don't want to just blow through this. I want to treasure this time together. We are so blessed that during this season, we are able to meet in this way and that God uh, meets us here. Uh, the distance between us and God, between creator and creature, is infinitely great. And even us then rebelling in our sin, putting more distance between us and God. We think about God coming in Jesus, the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham to break through that distance and to have communion with us. And the God who has come that far uh, to be with us uh, meets us on an internet video chat site. It's amazing. Uh, that's not that much farther for him to go. And I'm thankful that our God meets us here. Uh, this morning, we are in Genesis 14, just moving along the life of Abraham episode by episode. And today's Abraham story is a sometimes forgotten one and often neglected one. But there is so much here for us. So I want to invite you, look on your worship guide to Genesis 14, or if you'd like to use your Bible. This, we're going to go through the whole chapter, and then we're going to divide up uh, the preaching, the teaching, uh, in two sections. So I'm going to read the whole chapter, but today we're just going to do part one, and next time we do part two. So to continue the episode metaphor of Abraham's life is a series that we would watch. This is going to be a part one to be continued cliffhanger, just so you know. Um, so if you would, open your Bible, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. And fair warning, there's a lot of names here uh, that, are, that are different than ours. So uh, feel free to laugh at me if I mispronounce the names, but don't laugh at the people for having funny names, because we all have funny names. Okay? All right, let's look at the passage together. Genesis 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch. <clears throat> Hold on a second, everybody. Let me start my clock so I don't preach at you for like an hour and a half. All right, let's try this again. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedolaomer, king of Elam, Title, king of Goin. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, Shimabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketolaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the 14th year, Ketolaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim, Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim, and Ham, the Emim, and Shava, Kiriathaim, 
and the Horites in, their, in, in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Ketaleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, the king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the king took, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their provisions, and they went their way. And they also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, in his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshal and of Aner. These were the allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Ketolaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for stories like this. Lord, I pray that in this time, the words of my mouth, like we sang a second ago in Psalm 137, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts here together would be pleasing in your sight. You are the Lord. You are the rock. You are the redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today we're going to do just part one of this story. And you might be thinking, Charlie, that sounds great. Uh, I have no idea what part one of the story is. I didn't understand anything in that narrative. There were too many names. It's too confusing. 
And you know what? I'm right there with you. I had to read this about 30 times, uh, plus get some help in order to follow this story. Part of the reason is because this is the way that this is written. Uh, it's written like um, like the annals of a victorious king in battle. This is written as political history. And the when Moses and then the, the Hebrew editors that came after Moses, all of whom were inspired by the Holy Spirit to put together this trustworthy account um, that's useful for us today and to hear from God through this. When this is put together, they included this story, uh, but kept some of this politicized language of this the annals of a victorious king in battle. So let me just go back and let me summarize for you what happened in this story using regular 21st century Portland language. So basically, here's what's going on. If you remember Abram, he had been, he's sojourning in the land. He had come back up from Egypt and his nephew Lot was living with him. And last week we talked about how God uh, worked through Abram. So Abram in a godly way could um, offer Lot a chance to go on his own way, to leave. And Lot chose to take a piece of land near Sodom because it was green and it was fertile. And Abram uh, let Lot go. He blessed him on his way. Lot was a grown-up. He could, he could make his own decision, even though it would be a bad one because it was near Sodom, which was this sinful city. Well, this week we see that Sodom and actually all of the area around Canaan uh, shortly after that entered into a kind of world world war. This is framed uh, in the text as a global conflict. Now, obviously, uh, the globe is bigger than, uh, the, than, than the, the Near East and Mesopotamia. But at the time Abram was living, the, the world that was at war was the whole world that he knew. So there's this global conflict. Basically, it went down like this. There was a coalition of four Eastern kings, kings that came from the far east, like Babylonia. It said Amraphel, king of Shinar. Well, Shinar was an early name for Babylonia, and that was, that was far east in Abram's day. Well, there's a coalition of four kings, uh, and the, the leader was this guy named Kedolaomer. And uh, Ketoleomer, Shiner, king of, or Amraphel, king of China, all, these four kings from the east, they came and they invaded the west where Abram lived, the land of Canaan and the Jordan Valley. So four eastern kings invade the west, the western nations, and fight against five western kings and defeat them. So world war, the east invades the west and wins, and the west becomes enslaved. And they're enslaved for 12 years, and then they decide we've had enough, and they rebel. Well, they had a year of freedom. And then in year 14, Ketoleomer, the big, bad, scary king from the east, he comes back with his friends and crushes the rebellion in the west. But this time, they didn't just defeat the five western kings. They defeated the five western kings along with their new allies the Rephaim, the Horites, the Amalekites. Now, these new allies, these names are significant 
the Rephaim, the Horites, the Amalekites. These are what we learned later in the book of Judges. Uh, these are, at the time, giant clans. Now, we've talked about the Canaanites at the time of Abram uh, were considered to be giant clans. And that sounds a little Harry Potter, a little Lord of the Rings. And maybe in our own uh, contemporary minds, we think, what is this? What, what are these giant clans? But we know from the testimony of scripture, which is trustworthy and useful, uh, but we also know from history that these early Canaanite tribes, the people were large. They were big folks. Uh, Goliath, who was recorded to be, uh, you know, real tall, like nine feet tall, was a descendant of one of these giant clans. So these are ancient peoples that were big in stature, but they were also warlike. Uh, they were aggressive. And in their religious practices, their religious practices were, um, they, they openly worshiped demonic forces, uh, open, gross sexual immorality in their worship. Uh, things like child sacrifice, human sacrifice. These are, it's a little bit more Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter-ish than I think that we would be comfortable with. These are big warlike people that in their culture, the lines between uh, the physical and the rational and the scientific and the fanciful and the magical and the demonic are very much blurred. So these Western kings who have been under attack, they rebel and the Kedali Armar comes back to crush the rebellion. They solicit the help of these giant clans, these dark, uh, scary, uh, almost magical giant people groups, but the Eastern kings still crush the rebellion. Uh, the Eastern kings are so powerful. They completely shatter the West. And Lot, Abram's nephew, who last chapter had moved near Sodom, now is living in Sodom, and he gets carried off by Ketoleomer and friends. Now, apparently Lot, you know, he started out camping near Sodom. Apparently he moved in, and now he's fighting for, for Sodom's independence. He's part of Sodom now. And when Sodom gets defeated, Lot is carried off. Now, this whole time, Abram is living peacefully in Hebron, near the Oaks of Mamre. Mamre was his, the name of his neighbor, and Abram was living with his people on Mamre's property, and there's no war where Abram is. Remember when God first called Abram? He said that, um, that Abram would be a blessing, and that those who blessed Abram would be blessed, and those who cursed Abram would be cursed. Well, here we see that while the world is on fire, while a world war is erupting, Abram is living a blessed, peaceful life in Hebron. And so are his neighbors. So are his allies. It's like no war in our time for Abram. And then one day a messenger shows up with a message. Abram, uh, maybe you've heard of the world war. Um, maybe you heard it on the radio or something, but your nephew Lot has been carried off by Ketoleomer and his armies. Not only has everyone here been defeated, but your nephew's been captured. And Abram decides to take action. 
He takes 318, says, trained men in his household. Now, we know these aren't his sons because he's unable to have children at this point. This is like his, remember, he's a very rich man. This is like his private army, his private security force. He enlists the 318 men. He calls up his neighbors, uh, you know, Mamre, Eshel, and Aner. He says, guys, come on, let's go. We're going to go rescue Lot. And they march. It says they go as far as Dan. Well, from Hebron, uh, in this whole process, Abram marches 240 miles chasing down Kedolaomer and his armies to rescue Lot. It's incredible. And then he defeats the Western, the Eastern kings and chases them out of the country, rescues his nephew. Abram, who's like an old man, he's in his 80s, and his 318 private security force group and his neighbors, the guys he likes to play golf with, they chase down the, this great eastern army who had defeated all of the west including the giant clans abram chases him down 240 miles and he rescues his nephew lot here we see abram acting you know god has promised the land belongs to you abram i'm going to give it to you and here we see abram acting like it does and the text calls him abram the hebrew Every other name mentioned here, it's so-and-so, king of this place, so-and-so, king of this place, so-and-so, king of this place, and Abram, the Hebrew. He's identified as separate, as special, and he goes and defeats the army. He, if this was a March Madness bracket, uh, then Abram has basically become the champion of the world. Eastern kings defeat Western kings, Eastern kings defeat giant clans, Abram defeats Eastern kings. Who's the new apparent champion of the world? Abram. Abram and his guys win the world war. This is a huge victory. And he comes home. And as he's coming home, two kings who weren't uh, two kings come out to meet him in a place called the King's Valley. Now, we know that today uh, it's an area near what we know as Jerusalem. Two kings, the king of Sodom, who had recently been defeated, and it said that him and his men, some of them even fell into tar pits or ran to the hill country when they're coming back. So he's not just defeated. He's like totally disgraced. He comes out to meet Abram. And this other guy named Melchizedek, uh, who is... Uh, Melchizedek, uh, his name actually means the king of righteousness, and it identifies him as the king of Salem, which means the king of peace or the king of Jerusalem. So king of righteousness, king of peace, king of Jerusalem comes out, and he's a priest of the most high God. In Hebrew, it's El Elyon, God most high. And he blesses Abram. And then the king of Sodom tries to make Abram a slippery deal where Abram would sort of divide his victory 50-50 with the king of Sodom. He's not going to do that. That's ridiculous. King of Sodom ran away and fell into a tar pit. Uh, and then so Abram receives the blessing and then he does something kind of amazing. He renounces the spoils of war. He gives back and decides not to keep what he has won out of his loyalty to God most high, El Elyon. And that's the end of the story.
What a strange, exciting story. It could be a movie. It could be a book series. Uh, but it's right here in Genesis 14. So throughout this series we've been doing, we've been coming to each text, reading it, examining it, and really asking two questions. Who is Abram's God in this passage? Who does God show himself to be? And then is this the God that we know? Well, I want to address those two questions this morning, along with the third question, which is, uh, what are we supposed to do with this? Because like it says in 2 Timothy, uh, all scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God, and it's useful for training in righteousness. So how are we supposed to use this story to become better people? All right, so three questions. Uh, what does this tell us about God? What are we supposed to do with this? And is this the God that you know? So let's just start with the first one. What does this passage tell us about God? Who does God show himself to be in this passage? Well, each week we've come to the text and we've sort of drawn conclusions from the story to put together a, a profile of who God shows himself to be in each passage. But in this particular passage, uh, we don't need to do that as much because it's very clear God is actually specifically named and described, excuse me, and described here. He's named as God Most High, or in Hebrew, El Elyon. Who is God in this passage? Who is Abraham's God here? Well, he's God Most High, El Elyon. I say the Hebrew because uh, even if, you know, you don't speak or read uh, or hear Hebrew well, Looking at the Hebrew helps us to really grasp the nuance in the name God Most High, El Elyon. El is a Hebrew abbreviated term for Elohim, which means God. Uh, when I was growing up, I was taught, I grew up mostly in the South, and I was taught as a little kid when I spoke to ladies, especially like my mom or a lady who was older than me or had authority over me, or even if I was speaking to a peer or someone younger than me, but I wanted to show extra special respect, I would say, I would refer to the lady as ma'am. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. Some of you were taught that tradition as well. Well, the word ma'am is an abbreviated form of an older word, madam. And madam is a title for a lady who commands respect, a lady who should be given special recognition. So I was taught as a kid to say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Uh, and ma'am is short for madam, this older term, this big meaning. Well, L and El Yon are kind of like that. L is an abbreviated term for El, uh, excuse me, L is an abbreviated term for Elohim. And Elohim is an old word that means God, but it carries uh, sort of like madam means lady, but it carries special significance. Elohim carries special significance. Elohim is a name for God used in the creation account. When we read the Hebrew Bible and we come across Elohim, it carries this connotation of God, the creator, the one who created the heavens and the earth. And because he created them, he owns them. He has power over them. And this is why in the text, um, when Melchizedek, this mysterious king that we'll talk about mostly next week, when he blesses Abram, he says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, El Elyon, 
possessor of heaven and earth. Some other translations say maker of heaven and earth. So who is God in this passage? Who is Abram's God here? Well, he's El Elyon, God most high, possessor, maker of heaven and earth. Uh, Elyon, the Hebrew word Elyon, uh, means like most, greatest, most ultimate. So you put El, Elohim, and Elyon together, and you get the most ultimate, greatest creator, owner of everything, God most high. Now that fits in this story, because here we have a story about all of these kings from the West and all these kings from the East, these kings with their cultures and with their gods and with their political alliances coming together in world war. But God, Abram's God, is identified as the biggest, the most ultimate, the one who owns everything. He owns the West. He owns the East. He's the one true most powerful God. He has all the power. The kings of the world might be battling uh, for various reasons, but God, the God of Abram, who's living peacefully in Hebron, that God is most high. So that's who God shows himself to be in this passage. Now, next question. What does this passage mean for us? What are we supposed to do with this? Well, God gave us his word in a book. And one of the reasons he did that is so we would read it like we read books. Uh, when we read books, we uh, use our imaginations. Um, we use our minds. We use tools like learning how to read as a tool, but also tools like literary criticism uh, or uh, taking the structure of the story apart. We can learn all kinds of things uh, in our interaction with this story as readers. Now, one of the things that we do when we read books, when we seek to really understand a story is we try to imagine ourselves in it. We think about, if I was a character in this story, which character would I be? So thinking about this story, this epic tale from an ancient world, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, one of the ways we can explore that question is by thinking, who in the story do I identify with? If I was one of the characters in this story, which one would I be? Now, the story here is not an allegory, so we, we need to be careful. We can't take this too far, but it's just being a good reader to think, which character here would be me? Where would I fit? So let's think about it. When I first started studying this story, uh, I spent, I asked myself this question and started taking notes. And I spent probably three or four days uh, trying to approach this story from Abram's perspective. Because so I think the most obvious and the easiest way to read this story, maybe the most natural, is for us to ask, who, who do we identify with here? Well, I identify with Abram. He's the main character. He's the good guy. That's, uh, he's the people of God. You know, we're part of the people of God. Uh, God had promised to give Abram the land, but the land was occupied with hostile forces. And Abram went out in God's power uh, to defeat them. And that's kind of like me. That's kind of like us, the church, right? We're God's people. Um, 
God, the world belongs to God. He's most high and he's called us um, to live in the world and uh, to go out and fight the, yeah, yeah, go out, fight the forces of evil, just like Abram did, and uh, to, be, to be victorious, that's right, we want to be victorious, Jesus is granted us victory, it says we're more than conquerors, and we're supposed to take a hold of what God has promised us, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right, yeah, that's what Abram did, that's, that's what we do, so, okay, how does this play out in the world? Well, uh, obviously, we need to do what Abram did, uh, the kings and the leaders of the world with their with their lesser gods and their and their corrupt cultural values and their uh, giant clan uh, mythologies and uh, their sexual immorality like the giants and their their warring um, natures uh, we need to go out and we need to uh, show them who's boss and our god is the one who's boss so we need to go out we need to enter this war to take a hold of what belongs to us oh excuse me what belongs to god um, so here's, that totally makes sense. And that's why as the church, we are called to stand, to take a stand against the hostile forces in the world. And through one perspective, that looks like what we're doing now as a church. Uh, we have decided to take a stand and, and resist conformity to secular, unchristian ideologies um, like liberalism or Marxism, whether that's uh, formalized or it's an incipient cultural Marxism, we take a stand. Uh, that's why God has taken a, a commissioned us to go out and fight socialism and feminism and uh, critical race theory. That's, that's what we're called to do. We're called to go out and take a hold of what belongs to us. Oh, what belongs to God. Or uh, God has called us, we are his people. We are in this world that's held captive uh, held captive to uh, to uh, forces and ideologies opposed to God. So we need to go out and um, we need to fight conservatism uh, because uh, we need to take a hold of what belongs to us and uh, the old guard needs to go. So we, God has called us to be anti-fascist. We go out and we, we need to, it's our mission. We're the people of God and uh, we need to expose the lies of capitalism and, um, and chauvinism uh, and uh, white supremacy. And this is what God has called us to do, to go out and take the land. Is anybody uncomfortable? I worked, just telling you my own story with this. I worked for four days. Obviously, we're Abraham in this story. How does this work? And every time I would traced that line of thought to its logical conclusion. And every time it brought me to a place reading the text where we go out and do what Abraham did and defeat, we fight a culture war. We fight a political war. We, the people of God, let's take a hold of the land. And every time I'd sort of get to the end of where that led, and I, I know churches and Christians who are doing this. And this makes me uncomfortable. Does it make you guys uncomfortable? Reading the story this way, making ourselves the hero of the story. When we read the Bible and we just assume that we're the heroes, it leads to a bad place. The word for this is triumphalism. Reading the text 
through a triumphalist lens where how the text works out puts me in a place of a conqueror. But that's not what this story means. Folks, I could tell you, I have, we have friends, Becca and I have friends and family. I know many of you do as well. Families, so maybe even some of your families have been torn apart. And some of your friends have been torn apart and crushed by this idea that the gospel has called us to go out and win a political, cultural war against whatever ideology we think is opposed to God. We have a friend who grew up in a Christian school, grew up in church, um, did Christian missions. And Becca and I saw this last spring on social media. She, she made a post that said she doesn't want to be a Christian anymore. And we went and met with her and heard her story. She was broken. And we, we asked, tell, tell us about the Christianity you want to walk away from. We heard things like, well, I see what Christians write on my Facebook wall when they found out that I went to the protests. I, I see what Christians write about masks and vaccines, whatever side they're on, how they're nasty to other people on social media. They're mean. And I think about how I grew up and, uh, and I can't, I'm not a Trump supporter, so I can't be a Christian. That, that kind of, we, we sat there and we thought, what are you talking about? That's not Christianity. And her response was kind of like, what are you talking about? And we start asking questions. What did you learn in church? What did you learn in Christian school? And the answers we were hearing were, I learned that I needed to stand up and fight for a Christian worldview. Well, what is a Christian worldview? Well, when I was in school, it was a big binder that we were each assigned, and it gave the Christian position on every political issue, every social issue. And, and being a Christian is believing and fighting for those things, and I can't do that anymore. My ideas have changed. I'm tired. We sat there, and we just, that's not Christianity. Christianity is not a worldview that we go out and fight for and win. It's not a political, but it's not Republican. It's not Democrat. It's not capitalist. It's not socialist. It's, it's centered around a person, Jesus Christ, who came to rescue us from our sin. This story, God has given us this story as a gift. And one of the greatest parts of this gift, the story, happens at the end when Abram says, you know what? I'm not keeping the spoil. I don't want anyone to think this battle was to make me rich. And when we consider that ending, we see that reading it through a triumphalist lens, and thank the Lord this is at the beginning of scripture because we learned that reading any scripture through a triumphalist lens that makes us the victor, makes us the hero, leads to misunderstanding and leads ultimately to hurt. So who are we in this story? We're not Abram in this story. That's not us. If we're anybody in this story, it's Lot. Lot made bad decisions. He was offered a blessing and he decided to go his own way. Think about where it says, 
in Isaiah that we all, like sheep, have gone astray, each one going his own way. Think about what it says in Romans 3 that says there's no one righteous, no one, not even one, no one understands, no one seeks God. Everyone has fallen short of God's glory, just like Lot. Went astray, unrighteous, bad decisions. But God sends his elect man, sends his divinely appointed representative, who was living peacefully under God's blessing, to enter in to the battle, to fight it and win it against impossible odds, to rescue his kinsmen. from the bondage of their own making. You see this? We're not Abram, we're Lot. In bondage of our own making, we like sheep have gone astray. And what Abram represents here is God's elect chosen man who has come to rescue. This is not a conquering story, this is a rescue story. And that man is Jesus. The Pharisees, who were caught up, like we read earlier, they were caught up in a religious, political uh, culture war. And they looked at Jesus and they said, you're not fighting with us. You eat with sinners. Those are the enemy. And Jesus says, don't you know that shepherds will leave the 99 and go after the one who is lost? That's what this story is about. Lot was a man in need, and Abram was God's elect man to rescue and meet that need, even if rescuing him means fighting the battle for the life of the world. And we are a people in need. And Jesus is God's elect man, who he has promised everything, who is living peacefully at God's right hand, who has entered into the battle to fight it for us to defeat the enemy of sin and death, for he, he himself to stand up against every cultural force and every cultural movement that raises up against the knowledge of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ, and for him to win that battle and rescue us, and at the end, give up the spoil presented to God the Father. That's what this story is about. So who is Abraham's God in this story? He's God most high. What does this story mean for us? Well, we get so confused. We think the Christian life is about us going out and winning some political, cultural opinion, Facebook wall war. But it's not. What this story means for us is that God has come to save us. He has sent his son to rescue us. And then the last question, which is good because we're out of time. Is this the God you know? Folks, I want to challenge you as your new pastor. I want to challenge us as a church. When your friends and neighbors look at your life, when our city looks at the life of our church, do they see people committed to a culture war? Do they see people who are fighting for, whether it's left or right, a political position? Or do they see people whose self-understanding is framed around being rescued, having been lost and now been found? Sinners 
who have been found by the good shepherd, lost sheep who have been rescued. Can't be both at the same time. But recognizing God as God most high and his son as the king of the world, the winner of the world war, means understanding that we ourselves are called to submission under his lordship, are called to reframe our understanding of who we are. God's redemptive plan for the world is not to sacrifice you or sacrifice hope to save his virtues. His plan for the world is to sacrifice his own son to save his people. Folks, I'm not the savior. You're not the savior. President's not the savior. America's not the savior. Jesus is the savior. And he has come for us. Is that the God that you know? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you, thank you, thank you for this story. Thank you for framing it in a way we got to wrestle with it. Lord, we ask that you would help us as we follow you to not be like the Pharisees who went out to win a culture war for God. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to know that you are the rescuer. You are the king. Help us to know our place in your redemptive plan, which is as a people who are loved, who are known, who are rescued, and as your messengers to tell the world that they are also invited to rescue, to be your messengers, to call our friends and neighbors and city and country to lay down their arms and submit to the good king who has come to save us. Lord, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.